Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The passenger aircraft division of Boeing has been deeply troubled since the grounding of its fleet of 737 MAX planes. The company's huge space and defense division used to carry it through hard times, but it too is losing altitude. And Democratic contenders will be standing tall at tonight's debate, some taller than others. We take a look at why height, whether perceived or real, has such a strong effect on politicians' prospects. But first... China's government has gone to extraordinary lengths to limit the spread of the coronavirus, and the new infection rate does seem to be falling. But more than 75,000 people are now believed to have been infected by the virus. More than 2,000 have died. Controls on the movement of people are strictly enforced. This week, authorities even went as far as disinfecting money. Businesses are restricting office hours or being forced to close altogether indefinitely. But one of the untold stories of China's tight controls is about their effects on migrant workers, who last month made an annual trek from the cities to their home villages for the Spring Festival and are still there. So we've seen a lot of national statistics about sort of idled factories and uh, suspended supply chains because a lot of migrant workers can't get back to the big cities uh, where they work. David Rennie is The Economist's Beijing bureau chief, himself now under quarantine in the country's capital. I thought it was worth talking to individuals uh, who are actually going through that, stuck in the villages uh, where they went home for Chinese New Year, where they would normally stay about two weeks, but in some cases they've been stuck kind of six weeks without any income. And how does that work? So it seemed to me I should go to a village. I went to one in Sichuan, it's about 1,700 kilometers from Beijing, which is really not in a very affected area. The entire kind of larger area around it has 22 cases. Uh, So far, happily, none of them have died. But even there, you have to go through a checkpoint with village officials. I spoke to one couple in particular. Uh, They described this very constrained life. They're back in their village for six weeks rather than the usual two, but they still can't see friends uh, or relatives. They can't go visiting. Uh, They can't even go shopping uh, of their own free will. Uh, Every three households in the village gets one ticket, uh, and they have to choose one person to go shopping for all three households. Uh, So they've been kind of picking vegetables from land near their home. You know, these are villages filled with little patches of kind of, you know, pea sprouts or cabbages or uh, there are trees with these big kind of grapefruit-like fruit, the, the pomelo, which they've been eating. Um, there's chickens just below their house in a, in a chicken run so people can barter eggs. You know, it's a very, very constrained sort of life. 
And there are quite a lot then of these, these, these migrant workers who are stuck in this position. Well, overall, there are about 173 million uh, long-distance migrant workers who work quite a long way from where they live. Uh, a lot of them have been unable to travel. It's partly because uh, bus services are suspended in a lot of places. It's partly because villages are sealed. It's also because a lot of factories uh, aren't open. You know, here in Beijing, where I'm now back in Beijing, a ton of office buildings are still closed because people are worried about catching it at work. So all the people who would normally guard those offices or clean those offices uh, don't have jobs. A lot of restaurants are closed. That's a lot of waiters and people who do the washing up who aren't back at work. A lot of construction sites are still paralyzed. It's still very much a country on partial lockdown, affecting hundreds of millions of people. And, and so there seems to be kind of a, a, an impromptu system set up here to, to look after these people. How, how do they know what that system is? Well, you have, you know, China has grassroots Communist Party members and party committees, uh, and they are very active. So when you go into their village, uh, you see people with red armbands who are party members or officials. Uh, they are coming around instructing people on what to do. They will certainly come and tell you off if you're seen, you know, going out and visiting. Uh, we've seen, you know, clips from the rest of China of really quite thuggish behavior by some uh, guards and, and sort of volunteer busybodies, things like going into houses where they think there's a mahjong game underway and smashing the table up. Uh, that got filmed and went viral on the Chinese internet. There's a kind of mixture of grassroots kind of uh, busybodying and, and somewhat thuggish behavior in some places. So in the meantime, these migrant workers clearly aren't migrating to work. What, what are they doing to, to, to pay for what they can pay for? Well, life is somewhat cheap in the village, and in the meantime, they're spending their savings. And one couple I asked uh, about how long they could last on those savings, they said about half a year. They've, they've done the calculation. I mean, comparatively speaking, that sounds like a lot of savings. I'm not sure I could live six months in that situation. That's one of the interesting things. I mean, I don't want to sound Pollyanna-ish, but... Chinese workers, migrant workers, they're both more vulnerable in many ways than rich world workers because you don't have the social safety nets and the, and the kind of medical care and things that we do in the rich world. But they are also more resilient because those safety nets are so skimpy. Uh, Chinese workers, even really quite poor workers, save at very, very high rates. So even the poorest quintile uh, by income in China saves about 20% of their incomes. The people that I spoke to who both work as migrants in Beijing. Uh, the wife works as a cleaner in an office tower. Uh, the husband is a kind of casual uh, painter and decorator. They're both in their early 50s. So between them, they make about 700 US dollars a month, uh, and they're saving about 140 of that, $140 uh, a month. That's really not unusual. And it's it's every one of these 170-odd million people who are, who are trapped in this way? Is there no, no migration, no migrant labor migrating? I went to the, the nearest big city called Mianyang, uh, to the railway station, which should be absolutely crowded with migrants going home uh, after New Year. It was almost empty. I did meet a middle-aged couple uh, who had been basically ordered back to work because the factory where they work in Zhejiang uh, makes the inner linings for those face masks you see everywhere in China that are desperately in short supply. So actually, they're not happy about going back because they're a bit worried about the virus and also they're not sure if they're going to get paid when they're in quarantine when they get to Zhejiang, but they've been ordered back for kind of the national good. And so what happens to those workers who are, who are being summoned back? One of the things worrying the couple that I interviewed at the railway station who've been summoned back to work in this face mask 
uh, wadding factory uh, is that they don't know if they're going to be paid uh, when they're doing two weeks of compulsory quarantine. Uh, a lot of cities are now demanding that if you come from anywhere else, you do two weeks of quarantine. They don't know if they'll be paid for that. They also don't know if the landlord of the room that they rent will let them back in because we're seeing a lot of outsiders, particularly migrant workers, basically not being allowed into the into their own homes by landlords, even though officials say that isn't happening. It clearly is happening. The rules are getting much, much tighter in a lot of places, including where I now am, Beijing. I'm back from Sichuan. Having been to Sichuan, I now have to do 14 days of quarantine myself at home, uh, basically without going out at all. That's a rule imposed by the Beijing city government uh, a few days ago. So if the, the numbers out of China at the moment seem to indicate that the, the rate of new infections is going down, why are the controls getting tighter? It's in part because uh, this massive movement has been pent up for a long time. You know, normally hundreds of millions of people would be moving back after New Year. They've been frozen in place. So here in Beijing, people are very scared about the idea of millions of migrants turning up and goodness knows what they're infected with. Are people just as, as fearful about, uh, about the virus and its effects as they are about their, their livelihoods? Absolutely. People talk about being frightened. People talk about, you know, pressure from their families not to go to work. Uh, there was a young man in the village who normally works as a taxi driver in the nearest big city. His mother has begged him not to go to work because she's scared he'll get infected. There's a lot of fear because people aren't sure they can trust the government numbers. There's a lot of fear because people aren't sure if they come forwards uh, with some sort of symptoms that there will be good care for them. There's also, you know, a lot of fear of just getting sick for any reason, because if you have a fever just for some winter kind of flu or bug, you're going to get hiked off into a very serious kind of quarantine. And that's not just kind of medically quite scary, being around a lot of sick people, but it would obviously be a big economic problem for these migrants who already aren't being paid. Thanks very much for joining us, David. Thank you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Boeing is trying hard to repair its image. When we look up in the sky and we see one of our products flying, we take pride in that. Nobody wants to see an accident happen, and we're going to make it right. The company's commercial division has been hammered by losses since two crashes of its 737 MAX airliner killed 346 people and led to that entire fleet being grounded. There's huge blanks in our future because we don't have our daughter. Boeing owns this. This week, the company started distributing half of a $100 million fund designed to help the communities affected by the two crashes. Boeing, though, is more than just a commercial aircraft manufacturer. So for the last year or more, all the attention has been focused on the 737 MAX following the two air disasters. But Boeing has other strings to its bow, so to speak. Henry Trix writes Schumpeter, our column on global business. It has a big defense business, which goes right back to before the Second World War. In the autumn of 1944, 
America's newest air weapon, the powerful super fortress, was used with great effect in raids over Japan. There hasn't been any focus on this because, in a sense, the 737 MAX has sucked all the oxygen out of the room. It's the only thing that analysts are looking at. But the defence business is not doing particularly well either and may demand quite a lot of attention once the fog over the MAX clears. And why isn't the defence side of the business doing well? The defence side is always expected to be a ballast for Boeing when the commercial division is in trouble. But at the moment, it's not really performing that function. So last year, the defence and space side of the business didn't grow. And if you compare that with other military contractors, like Lockheed Martin or or Northrop Grumman or, or Raytheon, they had boom years last year. And in fact... You know, the American defense and space industry is booming because defense budgets are going up. There's a lot of attention on space. Even in Donald Trump's State of the Union address, he was talking about the creation of this new space force. Just weeks ago, for the first time since President Truman established the Air Force, more than 70 years earlier, we created a brand new branch of the United States Armed Forces. It's called the Space Force. Very important. There's a, there's a lot of excitement, I guess, in defense circles about spending in the U.S. And the question is, is Boeing capitalizing on that? And the answer is probably at this point, no. And, and why not, though, if they have this, this heritage of being a big player in the industry? They seem to have slightly taken their eye off BDS as their defense business is, is known. It's suffering somewhat from underinvestment. So if you look at the capital expenditure on defense and space over the last few years, it's paltry compared to its competitors. It's also not involved in any of the super lucrative contracts that are out there. The F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, which is led by Lockheed Martin, Boeing has no role on that, so it gets none of the the income from that program And it lost out, too, on a long-range stealth bomber contract that Northrop Grumman won. Again, contracts worth tens of billions of dollars. So there's a slight sense that it is subscale. I mean, that's the the, the defense side of things, but that business also deals with the the space side of things, which, as you say, is is very much in the public eye. How, how How is that faring? On space, Boeing continues to attempt to put Americans back in orbit, which is, which is great. You know, we know that, that Boeing was instrumental in getting man on the moon. It's trying to do something similar. It's developing both a craft for carrying astronauts up to the International Space Station, which America hasn't been able to supply through its own means for a while now. And it's also developing launch systems to send rockets that may eventually get to Mars. But they had a mishap in December when the vehicle that was supposed to dock with the International Space Station kind of missed the rendezvous because the clocks were wrong. And that has resulted in a big charge for Boeing in the last quarter. But it's also facing more competition from the likes of SpaceX Uh, So it's not quite as easy as one might expect. So if Boeing manages to put these crises behind it, do you you think it can make a comeback? It is possible that when the fog over the max clears, investment in the defense side of the business could pick up. But it's also possible that 
Boeing will consider defence to be a lesser priority, for example, than building a brand new commercial aeroplane, which is another item on its agenda, in which case it might just limp on. And so if so much of this hinges on the, the, the fate of the 737 MAX, where are we with that? When will it take to the skies again, or, or will it? Well, the company and its new chief executive, David Calhoun, are saying that they expect the MAX to be back in the air sometime in the middle of this year. Now, it's not up to them to decide when it goes back. It's up to the FAA, to the regulator. At this point, we don't know whether the regulator is going to accede to that timetable or not. Whatever happens, it's still going to take a long time for this crisis to abate. Thank you very much for your time, Henry. Thanks, Jason. It's one of President Donald Trump's favorite insults, calling people short. On Twitter, he's belittled London's mayor, Sadiq Khan, and North Korea's dictator, Kim Jong-un, calling him Little Rocket Man. Now he's attacked Democratic candidate Mike Bloomberg, calling him a five-foot-four-inch mass of dead energy, claiming that Mr. Bloomberg wants a box to stand on at tonight's Democratic debate. Like any respectable New Yorker, the five-foot-seven candidate has come back swinging. Somebody said, uh, you know, that he's taller than me, calls me Little Mike, and the answer is, Donald, where I come from, we measure your height from your neck up. It might seem like small beer, but height may in fact have an impact on which political careers come up short. Being short, or even being labelled short, can actually hurt a candidate's presidential prospects. Miranda Aldersley reports for The Economist. According to a study by researchers from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. So, so this, this study, how, I mean, how did it come to that conclusion? So the researchers looked at data going back to the first presidential election in 1789, and they used a randomization test to figure out how many times the taller candidate would win by chance. And then they compared this to actual historical data. And they found out that in real life, the candidate who was taller won 67% of the time, which is much more than the chance they would have had if it was completely random. But that's only the popular vote, so it doesn't necessarily mean that that candidate went on to become the president. Popular support actually correlates to height. In other words, the taller the candidate, the greater his winning margin. That can explain up to about 15% of the variation in popular vote. So, for example, if Trump were to face Pete Buttigieg, who is five foot nine, according to this model, he might win by a higher margin than if he were to face, say, Bernie Sanders, who is closer to his height. Did they get as far as explaining why it is that, that height should have any effect at all? One study that they cited actually shows that height is linked to perceptions of dominance, intelligence and health. And in that sense, the presidency is actually like any other job. Men who are taller earn on average more over the course of their lifetime and get more promotions than their shorter counterparts. Another interesting study showed that when people were asked to draw their ideal leader against a typical citizen, they almost always drew the ideal leader as much taller. And that's actually true for people across all cultures. So that kind of feeds into another argument which they put forward in the study that this preoccupation with height is a kind of innate feature of society. 
Because even in the animal kingdom, groups and packs are usually led by the more dominant males who can see off the, the challenges. And, and so for uh, humans standing upright and, and not hunting in packs, it's really just about absolute actual height difference. Well, it's also about how people perceive you. It's funny because people judge politicians that they support to be taller than ones that they oppose. And a good example of this was a study done in 1963, which showed that before the 1960 election, people that supported John F. Kennedy thought that he was the taller of the two candidates. But people who supported his opponent, Richard Nixon, thought actually that Nixon was taller. In reality, Kennedy was just about taller than Nixon. But it also works in the reverse. So another poll in 1978, which was after Watergate ruined Richard Nixon, found that Americans estimated that Jimmy Carter, who had just been elected, was taller than Nixon. In reality, he was two inches shorter. I mean, um, aside from the presidential history, as we would have to be to ask this question, but any, any word as to whether any of this applies to women? Well, sadly, America hasn't had a female president yet. So there's just a lack of data on whether this applies to women or not. For example, if Trump were to face Amy Klobuchar or Elizabeth Warren, would he still be rated higher than them because he's taller? To be honest, I don't think so, because other studies have shown that the link between perceived leadership skills and height is much weaker in women than it is in men. So it might just not apply if women run. But Ask me in 20 years. I hope there'll be more data. So putting this in the context of the current presidential race, Donald Trump has, has said Mr. Bloomberg's 5'4". Actually, he's 5'7". But even at 5'7", he's at a distinct disadvantage. Exactly. So unfortunately for all the Democrats in this year's race, they're all shorter than Donald Trump. Trump claims to be 6'3". Official White House data says he's 6'3". But his driver's license says he's 6'2". So actually, if the Democrats really did want to get an advantage, they probably should have selected Beto O'Rourke, who's six foot four, or at least Cory Booker, who's six foot two. And to be honest, it wouldn't really make that much difference because this study shows that tall incumbents fare much better. So they looked at 25 elections. The incumbent was seeking another term. And they found 15 presidents were successful and 10 failed. But the successful ones were, on average, five and a half centimetres or over two inches taller than the ones who failed. But I do want to give an honourable mention to James Madison, who was re-elected in 1812, despite being under five foot four, which is pretty impressive. Right. Props to President Madison. Miranda, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. <laughs>